0: Hello, fellow foodies. In today's episode, we're going to take you all the way down to Tropical Suriname, where one of my friends and colleagues has been working for a number of years with the indigenous people of this area of the Amazon. Let me tell you a bit about our guest. Dr. Bruce Hoffman is an ethnobotanist and a tropical botanist with more than 25 years of field experience in the Guiana Shield region of the Amazon. He began his career in the tropics as a botanical expedition leader in Guyana with the Smithsonian Institution. And from the late 1990s onward, Bruce transitioned from a career in plant taxonomy to ethnobotany and biocultural conservation. He's worked now for several decades with the Amazon conservation team, which applies a field-based approach to partnering with local communities to protect tropical forest landscapes. He's actually currently dialing in today from Suriname where he's coordinating the Amazon conservation team programs and activities with communities in remote forests near Brazil. I'm super excited to have you on the show, Bruce. Thanks so much for dialing in.
1: Thank you very much. Thanks for the nice introduction. Yeah. I'm looking forward to uh, to yeah sharing what I'm doing down here. Great.
0: Great. Well, why don't we start by just telling us a bit about the communities that you work with as part of your um, job with the Amazon Conservation Team?
1: Yeah, well, I'm uh, I'm working in a you know small country, Suriname. Suriname is unknown to uh, many people in the north, uh, in, the, in the temper zone. Uh, it's a small country north of Brazil and. It's east of a territory called French Guyana, part of France, and it's uh, west of that, and east of Guyana, which is the former British Guyana colony. I came into Guyana in, in 1991, working for the Smithsonian and working, as you mentioned, Cassie, with, uh, with more with plant collecting and looking for new species. And uh, as I did that work, I... Was often working with indigenous people, and uh, you know, every time you go on an expedition, you generally fly into an airstrip, which is near a community, and you ask local people to uh, to help you, and and so I got to know over time um, these communities, and I just started to think, you know, I really want to do something um, to protect. Um, their way of life and and their options and also to uh, protect the plants um, rather than um, only collecting them and looking for new species which is you know absolutely important and fascinating but I really uh, enjoyed working with the people and wanted to um, do something on the ground with them and, and in the uh, uh, with the the uh, uh, forces of globalization coming in and a lot of, not a lot of knowledge being lost yeah so i eventually transitioned to suriname and that's where i've been working in south suriname with these communities uh for these many decades
0: and so these communities am i am i correct in understanding you work with the trio people and also maroons
1: yeah uh, i mean i'm working with the amazon conservation team and um so we are working in various villages, uh, Trio indigenous people, Wayana indigenous people, various mixes of indigenous people that are within those communities. So you might say Trio. There's actually, you know, seven, eight, ten uh, different groups mm-hmm. that can, can trace back to some other culture, but they uh, the, the dominant culture is Trio. In uh, the southwest of Suriname and Mayana in the southeast of Suriname, then in the center of Suriname are what are called Maroons. Uh, there's different terms, but you know they have their own name for themselves. Uh, they don't see Maroon as a, a a bad term, but it is seen that way by uh, some people. Think it's not a, a good word to use. Okay. <laughs> uh,
0: what is but, their preferred uh, term?
1: They like most tribes and cultures, they refer to themselves as their own uh, names, so there's the Saramachans is very dominant, uh, very, one of the first tribes. Well first I have to say, the the Maroons are the descendants of enslaved Africans, so that's something that I don't, people may not know anything about. They were uh, escaped from plantations and some of the early uh, people uh, that were enslaved were from British uh, uh, colonial powers, and and others later were from Dutch. So um, they, large groups of them, began to escape into the forest, and it's quite unique. You don't have anything like that in Guyana, uh, and many places they didn't survive, but in Suriname they survived, and they went into the interior and formed villages. And we're living a tribal life, basically. And uh, until today, they're, they're, they're probably the most traditional Maroons in South America and the Caribbean. And uh, they are, of course, changing rapidly. But the Maroons are um, forming large populations, up to maybe 25% of the population of Suriname. And they're living on five main rivers that are in Suriname. So any of the rivers you go, uh, you know, Suriname is uh, coastal. The capital city is coastal, and uh, then the interior after the coastal kind of crowded area where most people are. Then you travel to the interior. Almost immediately, you are in rainforest. Wow. And on all, and those rivers going south. Or, I mean, you travel upriver on those rivers, and you will get to um, you know communities very quickly, and uh, the way the maroons are living, they're all along the river. So you go village, 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 mm-hmm. um, all the way up to is you know the the southernmost point, um, is is maybe uh, uh, half an hour by plane. It's a full day by boat, and. Uh, and you find also each of those rivers has a different culture so you, oh. you have um, people with different names so the Saramakans live on the Suriname River and um, they are um, the, the most best known group but then you have uh, the Matawai, you have the Quinti, you have uh, another group broadly described as Chuka, I won't go any, you know into
0: too much detail yeah. on that. But there's a lot of diversity then, cultural diversity. I, I can imagine that they also have unique traditional knowledge because they came with uh, knowledge of landscapes from the African continent. And then I'm, you know, I'm assuming applied some of that to the South American forests, but also developed their own new sets of knowledge. Have, have you found that to be true with their food systems and in your work with them?
1: Yeah, uh, definitely. And I, I need to first say that um, I, um, there's a scholar, Tinda Van Andel, and, um, and so she, her work is very important in all of this. And she has, I've been looking at these systems, I have not published major um, works on the Maroons, and I'm not an expert on the Maroons. But I did my dissertation with, the, with uh, comparing Trio and Maroon, the Saramakans, a um, particular group. Uh, and their use of different uh, kinds of forests, different forest types, and certainly, uh, you know, it's it's something that we have, um, you know, it's been documented by previous uh, researchers and uh, explorers. And Tinda van Andel and her her groups that she's been uh, publishing with gone deep into some of that information. Yeah, um, but it is. Um, definitely the case that they people arrived with knowledge in their heads and they uh, looked around and they saw in some cases the same similar species and using similar plant families in similar ways. They also learned from the indigenous people and then also they had their own knowledge and you can see that also in the names and that's something I'm, I'm particularly fascinated with are the names for plants and the names for things that many of them have African roots from different um, different language groups in Africa.
0: So yeah. Bruce, I think most people listening today have never been to the Amazon. I'm wondering if you could maybe paint a picture of what some of the traditional villages look like. If you're coming up on the river, what what would you see if this was your first visit to, to a village in, the, in Suriname?
1: I think the image is in a lot of people's heads, but uh, and of course it's rapidly changing. So the way that buildings are made, uh, built, you know, people like to have the same buildings, roofs now. People are almost always on the river now. Okay, so you'll see a river bank. Um, in, in the Guyanas they have black water. So you might see uh, there's some places with a clear, uh, clear um, Almost reddish in the sun, but it's they're called blackwater rivers, and they're nutrient poor and often with white sands in this black water. And uh, I've always been able to drink black water and never gotten sick. Uh, I think partly that's just nutrient poor. Uh, not immediately downriver from a, a village, but you know you would. Uh, uh, it's it's a very different kind of river. And then other rivers are white water and they're more muddy. And uh, you know you can't see clearly in them, so you know you have that different look of the whole landscape depending on which river system you're on. And when I come up to uh, let's take Kwamla Samutu, which is the village I'm working in a lot, um, they have um, a very high river bank because the river gets gets high and they have to live well above the river to not be flooded every year. And then along that river bank are thatch cuts. Um, they're using a small palm for the thatch. It's a uh, uh, Genoma baculifera. It's a, a very nice little palm, and uh, so it's a very nice weave they make with that palm and mixing things. So you see these huts with these, um, you know, thatch tops, and especially in the past, they, uh, the walls were not very common. People were just living basically outdoors with, um, you know, very well-built structures. Uh, from the forest, um, these posts that don't decay for you know a decade at least, and hammocks. So you always see hammocks, and you'll see uh, you know uh, half of a canoe where they're processing um, cassava. Mm-hmm. So that's probably the most important um, activity is to to plant and harvest and then process this cassava of which uh it's also called yuca for people that don't know the the word cassava and um it's there's bitter cassava which has cyanide in it and is uh, easy to preserve and store because nothing can eat it and then you have sweet cassava so um you have different kinds and many varieties of each kind
0: that's great
1: you always see ladies women um you know processing girls and, and their mothers um, you know processing this uh, cassava they have to grate it and um, squeeze it and get the juice out because the juice uh the bitter one has cyanide and uh, <laughs> literally a dog will die if it drinks that stuff so in the uh, capital city uh, i didn't realize it for a long time but it's actually um they don't allow the bitter cassava so really every- is eating sweet cassava so, yeah. uh, normal uh, in the villages that you have this extremely toxic substance around and they're always making bread out of it and it's one of my favorite foods that's so great I, and I guess uh, by
0: grading by grading the cassava they open up those cells and release some of that that cyanide compound um, as far as I understand with the process, that the processing itself helps to remove a lot of the poisonous element. Yeah. Do they make chicha there also, or masato? I don't know how they would call it in uh, in Suriname, the alcoholic beverage from, from chewing the cassava and fermenting it?
1: Yeah. They, 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 uh, well, they say that they don't do that anymore. They just use old material to keep on. But it was a real... You know stigma everybody's saying oh they spit in their in their cassava uh, in their you know in their drinks so uh, oh how disgusting you know so um it, they've been um you know people all say that regularly uh, so you know it's they say they don't do that but anyway it's fermented for sure yeah. and it's actually um a little bit i'd say becoming a little problematic that I think with a breakdown in our culture, they're drinking more alcohol. Mm. And, and the size, because there's also a special kind of cassava for making the fermented drink. Mm. They call it, uh, they call the drink cassidi in, um, in Suriname. And that, um, the size of the field that is devoted to that kind has been getting larger and larger.
0: more more booze less bread okay I think we all feel a bit like that right now or maybe it's more booze and bread during COVID (laughs) besides besides cassava so we talked about the women are really involved in this do the men engage in hunting and fishing or what are some other major sources of food or income um, in these communities
1: Yeah, the um, the men are you know cutting the the farm, so they're still using this um, what they say slash and burn uh, mm-hmm. method, which is um, fine when the population is low and when there's plenty of land, uh, then it seems to be working fine. But uh, it becomes problematic because when if you stay in one place, then you have to go further and further to find. Forest that's old enough to have some fertility in it to to burn But anyway, the men uh, that's their job. Uh, you, you do see a division uh, gender division and um, in the culture and Sometimes uh, it doesn't look that great <laughs> for women um, women often carry everything um, They carry they go and they bring the firewood for example the men cut the firewood the men cut in the in the forest the farm and and the men hunt and fish that is their job Um, but the women have to go out and with an axe cut the wood into pieces and then carry back all this um, extremely heavy load and with the cassava also they have to go and take the tubers and carry that back and it can easily be um you know more than 100 pounds wow uh, and you even see old grandmas, you know, carrying these, these loaves um, because they're accustomed to it. Um, sometimes you see a man walking with his uh, wife and um, and he just has a gun or a machete in his hand and she has this giant load <laughs> in his hands. You know. But the idea is that he's supposed to, if he hears a animal um, like a, a peccary He's going to run and just drop everything and, and go his,
0: for it. Uh, yeah. What's What's a peccary, by the way, Bruce? I think most people may not be familiar with that.
1: It's like what we call we call a bush pig, mm-hmm. basically. You know, it's um. And there's the white lip peccary. Um, there's um, There's. Um, you know, there's two 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 kinds basically two uh, major kinds. One with a few. Um, individuals, and one with a um, hundred, a smaller one with maybe a hundred individuals, and uh, they're very dangerous, uh, especially the small ones. Uh, mm-hmm. You hear them in the forest, and it sounds to me, it sounds like a, an ocean wave. Wow. So deep, and they're they're going through the underbrush, and it just sounds like the ocean. And the first time is like, well, what's that? And he's um, you know, the guys that were with me, the, the local guys are like, you know, telling me, climb a tree, do something, you know, don't be here when they get here. Wow. And, uh,
0: do they have tusks that can cut you? Yeah. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm.
1: And they also, I've heard what can, will circle around you until you're disoriented and fall over. Oh, uh, but I don't know if that's, I, I want to <laughs> hear some stories about that. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, These guys, you know, they hunt them, so they're not scared, they always have a gun in their hands, you know, um, they don't hunt with bows and arrows anymore, mm-hmm. uh, but they were very skilled with that in the past, and some of them still bring their their, um, their bow and arrow along, great. but the gun, they're not scared at all, and they, um, they, they go hunting them. But me, um, you know, I might shoot myself on the foot or something. So I'm not going <laughs>
0: to. So you're not bringing that along with your plant clippers and you're very impressed, I guess. Yeah. Okay. Well, well
1: I climbed a tree and, uh, you know, and was just hoping that the, the tree wouldn't fall, you know, break or something. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, so we have, we have cultivation of plants like cassava. Um, what about wild forage plants, especially medicinal teas? Is that something that's common still in, in these communities? Do they still collect wild medicinal plants or also plants just to consume as food from the wild?
1: Certainly. Uh, and it's becoming, as you might expect with the, the um, pandemic situation, um, it's becoming more important than ever. And I think it's kind of a watershed moment that might be an incredible opportunity because people realize that they can't depend necessarily on the outside world to provide everything like it's been yeah. doing. So, or not, you know, not everything, but it's been kind of, you know, um, will be bailed out if there's an emergency, you know. Um, and as the young people, uh, which is happening globally in these communities, uh, don't, Learn as much, don't care as much. They think more about the outside world. Um, They that even can be on Facebook because they have access. So um, you know things are changing a lot, but um, they still are, you know, dependent on the land where they are and the airplanes. Because this place, most of the places in southern Suriname now are only uh, accessible by plane, Mm. you know, realistically. So the planes have to keep landing. It's like living in Hawaii. The boats have to keep coming,
0: right? Yeah. They're
1: going to be out of food in a few weeks. Yeah. And, uh, they're not getting all their food from planes, but you know, a lot of things uh, come in. Doctors can come in when there's an emergency. People can fly out. So they've been maybe losing some of their traditional knowledge because they have this um, outside support system. And yeah. now suddenly they're seeing, oh, you know, planes aren't coming. Stuff isn't coming, and this virus, you know, we don't know if it's coming or not. So they are um, starting to use local medicines. Uh, they've been, especially with, with ACT, we have traditional clinics in all of these villages and we have uh, healers that are in, you know, each clinic. So uh, it's been the kind of a renaissance, I think, in people saying, hey, look, this is our local medicine. Um, it's helping us. And so, you know you've had this tradition and people are still very much using plants from the forest mm-hmm. and and it's great to see and we've been you know as an organization act myself just personally um you know trying to promote that and that people keep that knowledge and realize how important it is and i would say you know so okay there's these grand masters you know these guys um healers and shamans that uh, know hundreds of plants and uh can make lots of medicine but even the the general knowledge is quite high mm-hmm. and people are, um, um you know regularly uh, if you're hunting you have to know some of these these medicines you can get lost and need to, need to know what you can eat yeah and i wrote in schools in the um in the in the, in the elementary schools in um, Saint in Kuwama, Wasamutu and in, in Tepu, other villages, uh, promoting um, the shamans giving first aid classes to the students, which the school, which the government can kind of accept. They're like, oh, they're not doing anything spiritual, you know, dangerous. It's uh, it's first aid, you know. Yeah. That's so. True you get cut you know and you're in the forest because all these people are in the forest even if they are on Facebook and, and you know getting influenced and want some Nikes they're still uh, in the forest constantly and so they are indigenous in their core no matter what is happening you know on the yeah other other levels so now they, they know if they get cut they know what plant is a good emergency plant to a uh, stop a good, a
0: good emergency plant to stop the bleeding that's that's so key I think I think you're right that what this is teaching us is the value of traditional knowledge in reinforcing this concept of resilience how do communities deal with something that's incredibly traumatic incredibly you know just cuts off normal resources like you're saying with the sources of food and other supplies through planes how do they deal with that and I think this is a time that's really unique in ethnobotany, in particular, because this is the drum we've been beating, you know, for a very long time. That traditional knowledge is key to survival. Ethnobotany is the science of survival, and um, you know, ensuring that communities are able to maintain that knowledge is so key, so key. Well, I know in addition to your work with um, medicinal plants, you're also engaged in a number of projects to kind of help build up um, local sources of economic gain, especially for women that are in the villages. Can you tell us a bit about those, maybe the honey project, the Stingless Bees?
1: Uh, Yeah, I love that. I love uh, the Stingless Bee Project. I think it's becoming more popularized now, the the whole, the awareness in the world of, of these, um, the presence, the, the existence of these uh, stingless bees. They are forest bees. They're native bees. Oh,
0: they're and, native bees. I didn't realize that. Okay.
1: Yeah. And I like to think of them as forest bees. Um, I saw them uh, advertised on a kind of uh, new age site as gentle bees. <laughs>
0: The gentle forest bees, <laughs> I'm like that.
1: <laughs> but basically, you know, honey in the world, it comes from um, mostly one species, right? And and uh, and so yeah, you have your varieties of of what has been um, uh, what flowers have been have been used, uh, nectar collected, and pollen and things, and you have you know you have your different. Um, You know, types, and you have your Africanized bees, which uh, started from an accident from an escape in Manaus in in Brazil. And that one mistake of an escaped queen uh, um, led to just, you know, um, it affected the whole world, I guess, I mean, especially the Americas. uh, But, you know, it it had an effect on economic, all kinds of effects uh, Mm. uh, from these. Um, Africanized bees, which are very aggressive, uh, but may be getting more gentle as they um, migrate, been migrating. But now they're in Texas. You know, I mean, they've yeah. been in Texas for a while. They're they're all over the place, and in some places they're extremely aggressive. Um, but they produce ridiculous amounts of honey. Yeah. so Productive, you know. So uh, you know, people put on their their suits, and they can, um, uh, you know. Work with these bees so uh, that's you know that's the dominant thing in all the stores is this is is you know your your normal apis moving for a honey and um and then you have the stingless bees and there's you know 500 species 600 species so you have um, uh a, a special, you especially know, of these meloponins that are that are um that are one of the genera of stingless bees, it's the most used in, uh, in stingless bee honey.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But instead of one species, you have hundreds. Interesting. And each yeah. of them has a different relationship with the forest, you know, it uses certain flowers, it has a different kind of nest, a different kind of entrance um, to the nest or location in the tree and behavior. And the people in, in these in villages that have been living with these bees um, you know, for hundreds, thousands of years, are uh, knowledgeable about all of these behavioral aspects, and this was first really popularized um, with Darioposi and the and the Kayapo and um, ethnobotany studies, um, mm-hmm. which they were doing. Uh, they knew a lot of different bees and behavior, and they um, they had a special relationship. You know, and it is with the Mayans also. They have this this ancient relationship with bees, and they have um, a bee god, or there are several bee gods. You know, um, so you have this this old relationship of bees being almost like another tribe of people. Wow. You see that uh, mythology, uh, in mythology, including in, in Suriname and in Kuala they have you know they have kind of bee people. Um, the name of a tribe. One of the tribes is uh, is like the bee people. So these stingless bees are um, generally smaller, and uh, from you know kind of half the size of a normal honey bee to uh, to much much smaller to tiny, to very cute, and, and <laughs> almost we'll keep them almost as a hobby. These tiny bees, and I mean it's like a pet, you know, and. and uh, but the main thing about the honey is, uh, stingless bee honey is that it is widely thought to be medicinal. Hmm. So people, um, recognize that this honey from the forest is more medicinal than this Africanized, um, or just honeybee honey, which is already thought to be medicinal, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, medicinal, And, and there's different uses for different kinds of bees. And um, for example, the, the tiny ones uh, are often used in Brazil for the eye for eye problems. And then I found. It
0: I guess it all comes down to like you were saying that they're they're pollinating different plants, and perhaps some of those are medicinal plants or plants that have medicinal compounds that they're incorporating into their honey. And that's and that's where biodiversity is so important. I love I love that there are different types of honeys. And it speaks to the health of the forest as well. Yeah.
1: Yeah, the stingless bee um, topic is, it covers everything. You know, mm-hmm. it covers traditional knowledge. Um, you want to protect the forest because the bees live in the forest. So if you don't want to cut the trees down or the, the bees will, um, you know, disappear. And then there's the, and the health, you know, that they can feed their children with this honey. And then there's the economic potential. So um, let me just switch to that um, to that um, mm-hmm. idea of what we're doing with, uh, and, and I've been mo- mostly the person doing the non-timber forest product kind of things in uh, Kwamla Samudu. And Kwamla is where we started the honey project, and it is not um, as big. It's, it's kind of introductory in a few other villages, uh, and well, the idea is. That um, we we learn about the, the collect traditional knowledge. So um, so I did interviews and uh, and I even have drawings of uh, by by an indigenous guy of like every kind of bee he knows and where they are in the hive right. and their their behavior. You know, are they aggressive? Are they not aggressive? Because um, some of them they don't sting, but they can um, they can be annoying. They can get <laughs> the your hair and your ears and you know they can they can uh, some of them are pretty nasty I have that all drawn out these different types and then we figured out okay this is probably the this set of bees is probably the best you know they they, they have the best tasting honey according to the local people they're gentle you know they uh, they can be um, um, they don't die too easily mm-hmm. uh, and uh, they also make other products you know they make pollen and they, um, they, the wax kind of that they seal their hive with is a what they make into what's called propolis.
0: Propolis, yeah, that also has some medicinal properties.
1: Yes, very strong. Mm-hmm. And propolis is uh, that they they put propolis on the entrance to their nest. Usually, there's a landing platform, mm-hmm. and they cover that with the propolis. So when the bees land after having gone outside, they kind of get cleaned by this antimicrobial It's like a surface.
0: disinfection station for them coming in it's, out. That's great.
1: <laughs> proven that, uh, that some of the resins they collect are antimicrobial against the worst mm-hmm. pathogens of the beetroot. So it's very, very specific. You know, propolis is not the HB. They make it specifically um, to protect. It's a protective thing, not just that there's a hole and they want to cover the hole. You know, it's, it's, yeah. A you know, whole nest clean. And so people have discovered that they can uh, take this and, and make a solution out of it. And it has a lot of health properties.
0: Yeah, cool. Are, are there special containers that are being used or, or how are, how are, how is this all working?
1: They have to get the hive out of the trees. And so in the beginning of the project, I won't lie, they cut down a few trees. <laughs> And that's how you get the hive. Otherwise, you could die trying to get up there and, and get yeah. the hive. One of the, the, the great surprises, one of the, one of the, the pleasant surprises in, in this project was the discovery of a kind of bee. maybe may be a new species that puts like five nests in one tree. None of the other bees species were doing that in, in Suriname. And so you look up a tree, and you just see it's like an apartment complex, and just like boom, boom, boom. So you can cut down one tree and get five hives. Mm-hmm. So that's um, you know, and we did have some video in the beginning showing the cutting of a tree, and people are like, "That's terrible! You're destroying the forest." So uh, that's really it's it's a bad image, but actually that's just the start, and you just have the start population and then you, you put them into boxes and the boxes that we're using are, are it's a brazilian design called the info box that's a research institute in the in house the boxes are kind of vertical and um, so it's it's made to be like like a tree and the way that the structure they have in the tree which is a vertical structure on their nest is the same for these hives and the i'd say the the the, the big um, hurdle that we got over was that we found two men that are like, like, just made to be beekeepers and like scientists. <laughs> I mean, these guys—they're so precise. They're so they care so much, and that is the success or failure of any of these projects—is finding that person or people that can do that. And ever since. They came on board. and I also went to Brazil and I trained myself in in Berlin over, about beekeeping with the stainless bees. And I um, was connected to a guy, a Brazilian PhD student who uh, who's graduated doctor now, and he came and and stayed in Suriname. And with him, uh, with his expertise, and with these um, guys in, in the village, then this is, this project really uh, took off. And That's the right. idea is that. You get a certain population of uh, bees in boxes, and then you can split the hives. So you teach people to make the boxes, and so they're now even right now as I speak, they're making boxes in the village. Um, they have the tools and the knowledge to make it's very precise boxes, and then they, um, you know, they put the hive. In the box, in the right way. It's complicated. It's easy for them to die if, if pests get in there. Uh, and then they, uh, at a certain point, you split the hive, and this will now double. You double the number of hives, and you don't go back to the trees anymore. That's just a, an initial beginning perk. So now we have um, at least 150 boxes in, in that village, and they are selling for polis already and that's for Corpus, it's a pretty uh expensive it's pretty high price great
0: so so in the end even though it requires taking down a few trees in the beginning to get started you might actually be helping fill an economic hole that could prevent deforestation in a larger scale is that is that kind of the idea there because you're you're bringing in money through this project yeah
1: and the reason why we um why we say um and why it's interesting or what what's the reason why do they need money people might say oh but they have what they need (laughs) Uh, but what's been happening is um they do need money and um you know they do need clothes from the city they need various things uh, in these days and mm-hmm. they will leave the village Especially men will leave the village and go gold mining or logging or do something. that's um, Very dangerous and also very unsustainable to the landscape So that's probably the most the biggest threat in Suriname right now to the forest is, is the gold mining Yeah, and so when these guys leave to make some money then they uh, they may not come back for months or years and the women get kind of left behind sometimes they receive supplies um, or money from or goods from the men sometimes they don't and so it and sometimes the women leave also and then mm-hmm. inter- a child with their grandmother or something so it's um that need to go to the city is breaking up the culture and uh and so if there's ways that they can earn money and stay in their community you know, then they're not participating in these dangerous activities. Sometimes they, they end up in the city with no money to fly back because every mm-hmm. flight is expensive and they can be in the city for six months trying to make enough money just to come back. So we're trying to make it an incentive to stay in the village and yeah. we facilitate with looking for companies that they can market their products with.
0: That's great. And where where can people go online to learn more about this project?
1: www.amazonteam.org.
0: Okay, and and besides besides the um, these economic projects, I know you've also been really busy over the past few years working on a really big project on lianas. Can you show us your uh, new book?
1: Oh, I'd love to. Um, this actually a few years old now, but um, considering how many years it took. <laughs> It's like, feels like very recent. Um, can you see that? It's
0: yes, beautiful. I love the cover. Gorgeous.
1: Lianas
0: I, of the Guianas, for those that are just listening and don't see the video. I kind have of
1: an artistic project as well as a science project. Uh, it covers um, many of these woody lianas that are in the Guyanas. So we're talking Guyana, Suriname, and French Guyana. And many of these would then also be in adjoining areas in uh, in Brazil and, and Venezuela.
0: That's great, wow! I I need to check that one out. It looks really really fascinating. And there's a number of medicinal um, lianas as well. I'm assuming, in that collection.
1: Oh yeah, certainly, they are highly medicinal. A high percentage of them is medicinal. Mm-hmm. Um, they might there might be say 20 to 25 percent of the, uh, the species in a, in, a, in a given forest is um, made of Lianas. And the number of, let's say in Quamala, where I'm working with the trios, uh, 30% or more are, of their pharmacopoeia is made of Lianas. Wow. So it's a high percentage, um, relatively high percentage, they're using for, for, um, for their medicines. One reason that um, it might be that lianas or medicinal one, one one theory is that um, they have a lot of leaf matter and very little woody matter, right? They're using trees to climb up, so they don't need to have all that structure. When they get up to the canopy, they spread out to mm. get the sun. That means they are there's a very high percentage of their biomass is leaf material. And that's very tasty for insects, or it could be tasty. What's thought, you know, likely is that they are producing. There's more biochemistry to protect.
0: Yeah, these, these compounds. And defense worst. compounds. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, that's
0: fascinating. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Bruce. This has been really enlightening, and I'm I'm so excited to learn about all the cool stuff that that you're doing down there.
1: Well, thank you very much. Thank you for having me on the on your program. Great. <laughs>
0: You've been listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious. If you'd like to subscribe to the show, be sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts. You can also see full video coverage of each episode on YouTube at the Teach Ethnobotany channel, or you can visit our website at www.foodiepharmacology.com. Thank you so much for listening. Stay healthy out there, and I'll see you next time.